Make quick work of that, didn't we? Let's turn our attention to what we started a couple weeks back in this idea of four-chair discipling. And I want to begin just quickly by uh, reviewing. Last week, our discussion centered around the reality that Jesus modeled a, a method. Jesus modeled a method for making disciples that was simple and reproducible for all of the church for all of time. And we've begun to unpack this method by acknowledging that each and every person is in one of four places or in one of each of these four chairs. Again, I want to reiterate, every single person on planet Earth is in one of these four chairs. There are absolutely no exceptions to that rule. Every one of us is in one of these four chairs. And last week when we walked through those four chairs and we kind of highlighted each of them and, and beginning this morning, we will zero in with some more specificity each chair. But last week when we introduced them, we, we said chair one was those who were spiritually dead. Chair two is those who are now spiritually alive. Again, I want to remind you that the difference between chair one and chair two is the cross that is in the center of those two chairs. Chair number three is those who are spiritually maturing. And chair number four is those who are spiritually reproducing. Again, I want to remind you, every single one of us is in one of these four chairs. How many exceptions to the rule are there? Zero. Every one of us is in one of these four chairs. Now, as we take time in the coming weeks to sort through our chairs one at a time, we must also make something else clear, regardless of which chair we are currently in. The goal is that every single believer would be in chair four. Okay? So we, don't, we all start in chair one. The goal is not to get to chair two. Okay? The goal is not to go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. The goal is to go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive to spiritually maturing to spiritually reproducing for all believers. The goal is for all believers to be spiritually reproducing. Now, there is no timeline per se. There is no specific regiment to reaching chair four. It will vary from person to person because all people, they vary. They're different, right? And, and I want to take this as an opportunity. I got a question after last Sunday, and it was a really good question, and I was not clear. And so I want to take a moment to clarify the question that I got last week. I made the comment last week as Jesus was living amongst his disciples, those who he had called. And then when we went to the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus told the men who were fishing, Andrew and Simon Peter, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I made the comment that this invitation in Matthew's Gospel to follow Jesus and be made fishers of men was actually about 18 months after Jesus had originally been introduced and, and begun uh, a, a relationship with these men. And I said that because the point that we wanted to make was that Jesus was investing in these men before he said, now that you're following me, this is what we're going to do as you follow me. I'm going to train you how to do this. And, and I think some folks, based on the question that I got, actually left last Sunday thinking, hey, there's an 18-month timeline. So from the time I get to chair two to chair three, I've got 18 months. Um, that wasn't the point because there is not a specific timeline. Some people are going to mature faster. Some people are going to mature slower. The point, the reason that we emphasized this 18 months last week was to say that before Jesus sent those men out to begin reproducing in their maturation, he was investing in them. He was training them and he was teaching them and he was going with them and demonstrating what it was that he was now calling them to go do. So if any of you heard that last week and thought, okay, there's an 18-month time window, there's not. I didn't communicate clearly. So we know in moving along these chairs, as we go from chair one to chair two, spiritually alive, there's no timeline there's no clock that we're watching saying, okay, this is where we should be here, and this is where we should be here, and this is where we should be here. Here is the, the, the timeline, if you want to say there is one. It's called growth. 
It's called processing. It's being in process, not processing, progressing. We're all in process. And so the goal is that we're progressing along these four chairs, or along these four chairs, okay? So there's no timeline, but the reality is that each and every person who is in Christ should be maturing. That's non-negotiable. That's what we see modeled in Scripture. That's what we're called to. And that once we place our faith in Christ, we're maturing to be more like Jesus. I mean, after all, that's the promise of the Word of God, right? That we will be conformed into the image of Jesus. Well, look, I don't know about any of you, but I know in my own life, I, I, I need some work. I need to be conformed into the image of Jesus. I've got a long ways to go. I'm in process, And so I'm thankful for the promise of Scripture that as I am obedient to the Word of God, as I submit myself to what the Word of God teaches and to the people that God has placed into my life, as we fellowship together and as we grow together, I'm progressing. I pray I'm more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. That's the measurable. Okay? That's the timeline that we're growing to be more like Christ <clears throat> that we're maturing in our Christ-likeness for the purpose of spiritual reproduction. There's a goal, or the, the goal is that reproduction, but the, the purpose of our maturation is to reach that goal. And so this brings us this morning to chair one. We said last week, chair one is the spiritually dead. Now, here's the reality. Every single person in this room is either in this chair or was in this chair. This is, the, this is the one chair that every single person at some point in their life or perhaps still in their life is in. Every single person we're going to see from the word of God this morning is spiritually dead by nature. And so we were introduced to this chair last week and again we've called it the spiritually dead. Another way, perhaps a more... A church type phrase that you might hear is that those who are spiritually dead or those who are in chair one are, they're lost. They're they're lost. They're wandering to and fro. They need to be saved. Again, it's how we would see this from the word of God. And if you've been around the church for very long, you're most likely familiar with uh, Romans chapter six, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's a good verse, but that's not the one that I meant to type in there. I meant to type in there Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So everybody is born in this, this sin, uh, this state of being separated from God because of sin. Right? And so this is where we all begin. And so the challenge that we see from chair one is to begin seeing everyone the same. And this is how we are to see everyone dead apart from Christ. This is how we regard everyone, dead apart from Christ. And I would submit to you that this is a challenge because it's easy to mistake spiritual busyness as spiritual life. And in our busyness, we often believe, and and, and so I want to say, sometimes it's hard to see people as dead because if we're willing to be honest this morning, I know I have thought this way. Oftentimes in our spiritual busyness, we don't view people as we should because if we're honest, we think our busyness makes us a little better than they are. So we're not viewing people rightly. I'm more busy spiritually than this person that's less, spiritual, less busy spiritually, so I'm in a better place than they are. But the reality of the word of God is no amount of spiritual busyness can change an individual's standing before Jesus. Spiritual busyness is not the means whereby you go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. So we got to understand that everybody starts on the same plane, dead. And everyone ought to be regarded as the same. It was kind of interesting. A lot of weeks, Pastor Aaron will communicate with me what he's going to do for the call to worship, just to make sure that he's not... Um, some, there's been times where he said, hey, I was thinking about this, and I was going to use that. And I'll say, no, that's okay. Read it anyways. That's good. It's, it's good to kind of get us going. Well, this week, uh, just in the craziness of you know, life and everything in general, I actually didn't know what 
the call to worship was this morning, but it was 2 Corinthians 5. And what did Paul say there? We, we don't regard people the same way anymore. I'm paraphrasing. The point was that they regarded everyone in the flesh at one point. That is spiritually dead. But if no amount of busyness can make us alive, then this is the reality we have to understand this morning. Every single person, the amount of busyness or not, is dead and separated from God apart from Christ. Spiritual busyness is not the barometer. And what makes God's word, I would submit to you this morning, so magnificent is that the fact that all people are dead is not the end of the story. I hope you know this morning, God would have been perfectly just and right to leave us in our state of deadness and in our sin and then judge us for all of eternity because of it. He was perfectly just and right to do that. Why? Because he's a holy God who we've offended with our sin that we're born with by nature. But the beauty of the word of God, the magnificence of the gospel is that that's not what God did. God made a way for dead things to be made alive. It's an awful thing. It's an awful thing to be spiritually dead. But Christ has the ability to make that which is dead alive. Consider the words of Howard Hendricks. The amazing thing, my friend, is not that you die, but the amazing thing is that you live. We think we are in the land of the living on the way to the land of the dying. My friend, nothing could be further from biblical truth. You and I, that is believers, are in the land of the dying and on our way to the land of the living. See, this is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ and the full counsel of the word of God magnificent. We physically may be deteriorating in this life, but if we're in Christ, we are not on our way to the land of the dying. We are on our way to the land of the living. But we must understand this morning, those who are in chair one are not on their way to the land of the living. They are living amongst the dead on their way to being judged for all of eternity for their sin. They're dead. But in Christ, dead things become alive. You see, in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he deals with this very reality. If you were in discipleship class this morning, Pastor Aaron alluded to this, the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus are the theological instructions that he has for them. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, he lays all of this theological groundwork and he teaches all of these truths about salvation, about our identity in Christ, about our position in Christ. All of these things are are unpacked in the first three chapters. And then in chapter 4, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. And so what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, is he says, I've told you all of these things theologically. I've taught you all of this stuff that is the groundwork. These are the things you need to know. Therefore, I want you to take what you know and live a life worthy of the manner of which you've been called. All right? So this is how the book of Ephesians break down. Three chapters of theological instruction, three chapters of practical outworking of that instruction. All right? And so this is what Paul is unpacking in the book of Ephesians. Now, our focus this morning will be on the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And our focus will be there because Paul describes those who are in chair one with great detail. And he doesn't paint a great picture. I mean, if I can be honest with you this morning, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, the first few verses... And, and there's a chance that Paul might be describing you dead in your sin. That is not very comforting. But nonetheless, this is what he does. He touches on the position of mankind prior to Christ. All of mankind. 
And so as he's writing, really what he's doing in this particular section is he's laying the groundwork. He's talking about who the Ephesians used to be, who all people in their natural state are. But then he reminds the Ephesians that they're not that anymore, right? In a sense, we could say they've moved out of chair one, and they're progressing their way along the chairs. And Paul's given thanksgiving back in chapter one for this reality, that God is at work in the Ephesian people. That God has saved them and that he's transforming them and that he's, he's growing them. But in chapter 2, he gives attention to what they were, to who they were. And he says this beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Whoa. Whoa. just, Just look at the last part. Paul tells those In Ephesus, prior to their salvation, by nature, they are children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. His holy, just, and righteous wrath. Like all of mankind, he says. In verse 4, we learned this morning in discipleship class in our inductive Bible study, we see, he said, but God... This is a conjunction. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, once again he reiterates, dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, looking at what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church gives us a great indication It gives us, hopefully, a great understanding of the condition of those who are in chair one. And that's the first thing I want us to consider this morning. The condition of those who are in chair one. Again, consider with me the language that Paul uses to describe the individuals who are still in chair one in the first few verses. Dead. Following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air. So he's the one who is over the course of this world. And and so those who are in chair one are following him. It says they're following the one who is at work in the sons of disobedience. He says they live according to the passions of their flesh. He says they carry out the desires of their body and their mind. And then he summarizes this as we've seen by saying that by nature... They are children of wrath. You see, I want you to understand something this morning. When we are born, we are born into chair one. And when we are born into chair one, by nature children of of wrath, what Paul is communicating is that our very nature is that of a person who is at odds with God. You are not born in a right position before God and you screwed it up. You are born at odds with a just, holy, righteous God. And as we've alluded to already when we started, God is completely justified to judge those who are in chair one under the weight of his wrath. And this makes sense when we understand all that Paul has stated here about those who are in chair one. Because those who are in chair one live not for the reason that they were created, that is to be a representative of God's glory, to live their lives in pursuit of his glory and to give him glory for the things that he has done and for who he is and for how he operates. Instead, those who are by nature children of wrath, they don't live for God's glory. They live for their own glory. And this is something that must be understood by mankind today. 
You can be in chair one and be religious and do spiritual things. You can be in chair one that is lost, spiritually dead, and do spiritual things. But you must understand if you are in chair one, no matter the amount of spiritual things that you do, they are not for God's glory, they are for your own because you are still in chair one. They're for our own passions. They're for our own desires. They're for our own glory. Just about every one of us, assuming that we, you know, again, as we have a growing knowledge of the Word of God, we would understand that the Word of God very clearly teaches that simply doing religious activity does not make one right with God. That's why Paul, when he's writing here and he's talking about all that they were, how they were separated, they were children of wrath by nature, like all of mankind. He says, but God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead, he made us alive together in Christ. And then what does he say? By grace you are saved. Spiritual activity does nothing for your salvation. Your salvation is wholly a work of the grace of God. It is by grace that we are saved. I want to be careful, right? Because I'm kind of intense. You know, I'm loud and I'm all, and I, I don't want, I want to be honest this morning. This is a really tough passage. I mean, to, 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 to begin working out and understanding what Paul is saying here in these first three verses as a description of those who are in chair one, I don't want people to, like, I sound harsh. I'll, I'll acknowledge it because that's kind of my demeanor. You know what I mean? You, you guys have all been around long enough to know I'm intense. I'm no nonsense. Pretty black and white. And looking at what Paul says about being spiritually dead, I may seem harsh this morning. And that's not my intention. I'm, this, is, this is what the word of God is communicating. That, that we were dead in our sins, stuck in chair one, and the only thing that moved us from chair one to chair two was not our good deeds, it was not our busyness, it was not our works, it was the grace of God who is rich in mercy in Christ Jesus. If you've been here very long, you know that I feel very strongly about the reality that I am obligated to tell the truth, even if it might seem harsh. The worst thing that I could ever do for the individual who is in chair one is lead them to believe they're okay in chair one. Because the, the one who is in chair one is currently residing under the weight of of the infinite, holy, just, and righteous God of the universe's wrath. This is not a game. It's not a joke. And while it might seem harsh, don't view it as, well, man, pastor, he was really fired up and harsh. No, this is a plea. It's a plea to see the word of God for the beauty that it is. That though you're dead in your sins, though you've offended a holy God, because that same God who is offended is gracious and merciful, he gave Jesus that you might be made right with him. This is magnificent. But we must understand that it's only God's grace. It's not things, it's not stuff. It's not busyness. The truth of God's word is that by grace we have been saved through faith. And you know, sometimes when you tell the truth, it seems harsh. But I want you to understand something. The same truth that seems harsh is the truth that brings healing. And that's what dead people need. Not just healing, but they need to be made alive. It's the word of God that makes dead people alive. It makes dead things alive. And if anyone is going to move from chair one, spiritually dead, to chair two, spiritually alive, then they must understand something. They must understand they're dead. You will never see a need to be made alive if you don't first believe that you are dead. If you think that by nature you're good, or your, you, you know, every, I have, was having a conversation recently, 
And uh, it's a form of this conversation has, has cropped up a couple times, but uh, over the, uh, and we actually went and did a hospital visit Friday, and we were having this conversation, and, and the individual that we were visiting, and he, we were just talking about different stuff. I don't even know the context, but he, he made a comment about <clears throat> just, uh, you know, how evil Putin is. Just when you see, you're seeing some of the things that are transpiring and unfolding, and, <clears throat> and we got to have a really good conversation, because as, as we talked, and I'm not picking on what he said, because as we talked, he understood where I was coming with this. But his original, his original comment said, look at all of the things that Putin is doing. Man, he is so evil. And we know he's evil because of the things that he's doing. But I challenged his thinking. I said, no, we know Putin is evil because he's unregenerate, and the natural state of all men is evil, and the outworking of his evilness is the things that he's doing. Because by nature, mankind is a child of wrath. The word of God is clear that apart from Christ, the intents and thoughts of our heart are what? Evil continually. You see, there's a notion that exists that says, you know, I'm pretty good. I was born pretty good. I'm not that bad. I might need to be fixed up a little bit. I might need to be modified or changed. Yeah, those notions exist, but they're wrong. Because the word of God doesn't say you were born good and then you screwed it up and now you need to be fixed. The word of God says you were born dead. And in your deadness, you are separated from God because of sin. And you must know this morning before you can be made alive, you must accept the fact that you are first dead. Being in chair one, it means that the one who is in that chair is dead lost, alone. And if you're dead and you're lost, you can do nothing to save yourself. Have you ever got turned around? Been trying to go somewhere and you got turned around and suddenly you didn't know what path you were on, you didn't know where you were traveling and you didn't have whatever the necessary means to get off that path or to get back on the right path would be and you literally felt utterly helpless in and of yourself? That's our condition in chair one. We are utterly helpless and can do nothing to change our standing before God because we're dead. We're dead. And the condition of those in chair one, that is being dead, means that something must happen. Something needs to take place. The condition of those in chair one has to change. Otherwise, at the end of the physical life of those who are in chair one, they will stand before a righteous judge and they will be condemned for all of eternity. And if this is true of those in chair one, and I believe it is, I believe very clearly the word of God teaches this, then the reality is that they have a great need. So what is the need of those who are in chair one? In short, there is one primary need for those who exist in chair one. It's salvation. It's an understanding that you are dead in your sin, that you have offended a holy God, and that apart from faith and repentance, you have no claim to his goodness. And his goodness is what? Well, that in his grace and in his mercy, he gave Jesus to take our place, to be punished underneath the, the weight of the wrath of God at the cross of Calvary once and for all. You see, God's wrath never goes unsatisfied. God's wrath was either satisfied on Christ as he was crucified at the cross and you believe in him, the wrath that you deserve was satisfied on Christ, or if you stay in your state of being spiritually dead, you will bear the weight of God's wrath for all of eternity. God's wrath does not go unquenched. And if all we had were the first three, maybe even four or five verses of Ephesians chapter 2, it would, it would be kind of a, 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 an ambiguous picture. It would be very clear that we were dead in our sin and that we were separated from God, but there's not a lot of clarity to what Paul means unless we have a good understanding where he says, you know, he made us alive together with Christ because he's rich in mercy. By grace, we've been saved. And he goes on to say, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Listen, I want you to understand. We are such arrogant people that if we could somehow manipulate the, 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 the reality to go from being dead to being alive, we would brag about it. And this is why Paul very clearly says the salvation that comes from God has to be solely from God. You don't have a part in it. You can't save yourself. You're dead. You can't be made alive. And so the need of those in chair one, as we've seen, is to be made alive. And that's exactly what Paul says here, that God who is rich in mercy, according to his grace, he made us alive. That is, he made believers alive and seated them in the heavenly places. And so just as much as Paul speaks to the condition of those who are lost, he makes it very clear that it is solely a work of Christ, solely a work of Christ, according to the grace and mercy of God, that dead things are made alive. Paul is adamantly clear. We see first in verse 4 that the only reason the Ephesian people are not dead in their sins is because God, who is rich in mercy, loves them. That's all there is to it. God is rich in mercy, and out of love, he bestows that mercy upon whomever he will. Paul says that while they were dead in their sin, God made them alive in Christ. It rings a lot of Romans 5.8, doesn't it? That Christ died for us while we were dead in our sin. God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. It's simply out of the overflow of God's love that he chose to give Jesus to save sinful man. Those in chair one's need is to be made alive in Christ. And so they're invited first to come and see, as we saw. Come and see Come and see for the purpose of learning. Learning what? Things like you are at odds with God by nature. You are separated from God and you are dead in your trespasses and sins. These are the kinds of things we invite people to come and see that they are separated. Again, as we've seen, most of the people that we will interact with believe that they are inherently good. And being inherently good, they really don't deserve God's wrath because after all, a God who is loving doesn't punish people. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Because not only are we not good and not only do we, in fact, deserve God's wrath, God does punish sin. He always has and he always will. And because we are not inherently good, and because we do in fact deserve the wrath of God, and because we are dead in our sin, it never works to just try harder. It never works to just be better or do better. It's a vivid picture, and so I'm going to use it. But when you go to a funeral... And you go up to the casket, I'm assuming you're there because by some way, shape, or form, you had a relationship with the individual who was there. I know you go up there and, you know, oftentimes you hear people say things like, oh, they just look so good. Oh, they really did a good job. I remember I was 17 years old. I was a junior in high school. Two kids were killed in a car wreck. And to this day, as long as I am sane in my mind, I will remember the picture of one of my friend's face when we walked up to the coffin and they had an open casket they say for us right so that we could try to you know process and work through some of this and when you walked up to the casket you could see where they had put his face back together and it pieced all the way down along his chin line now why do I tell you that story because when you walk up to a casket and you look at someone who is dead I've never walked up there and thought man they look good I walk up there and I think, man, they look dead. That body is lifeless. 
Now, hopefully in those situations, and maybe right now you're recounting a time when you stood next to a casket. Hopefully in those situations, you can rejoice this morning because that individual at some point in their life had progressed from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, and you have the hope of seeing them again one day in eternity. But dead things are not okay. You don't fix them up. You don't improve them. You don't make them better. Dead things are dead. And that's what God's word teaches us. That dead things are dead and that you don't make them better. Right? The call of the gospel is not be better because your need isn't to be better. The call of the gospel is believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation so that you could be made alive because you're dead. These are two totally different things. And furthermore, they're exclusively at odds with one another. If you believe that you just need to be fixed up, that you just need to be a little better or try a little harder, you have been sold a bill of goods. Because you're dead. And you need to be made alive. And this is what God's word clearly teaches. I remind you what Paul said. By nature... All mankind is children of wrath. And this condition needs to be remedied. And that is why those who have moved to chair two from chair one at some point in their life should be seeking to invite others into their lives so that they too can move from chair one to chair two. There's a lot at stake. There is a lot at stake for those who are in chair one. And it's interesting to me too, because the invitation in the word of God is not, you know, come hear the experts, not go to the conferences, not listen to the the guys on TV, not just focus on the people who do it well. The invitation is for people to see Christ in our lives. You see, the invitation isn't come and see, come to church and hear me preach because I'm a great preacher. The invitation is come and see the difference that Jesus is making in my life. Listen, I will flat out tell you, none of you will ever know the difference Jesus is making on my life Sunday morning from 10 to 11.15. All you know on Sunday morning from 10 to 11.15 is that I studied the word of God this past week and I put it together in a form that could be hopefully communicated clearly so that understanding would come about. That's not the invitation to come and see. The invitation to come and see is to say, look how Jesus is making a difference in my life. I've moved from chair one to chair two, maybe a little bit further along, but I want you to come see the difference that Jesus is making in my life. You know why we don't invite people to come see the difference that Jesus is making in our lives? Because he's not making a difference in our lives. What is there for people to come see? Oh, come see how I'm no different. Come see how although I claim to be alive instead of dead, there's not really any fruit or any bearing whatsoever of the fact that Jesus has made me alive. So we don't invite people to come see. Instead, we settle for, well, hopefully they're listening to preaching. Hopefully they're going to church somewhere. Hopefully X, Y, Z, A, B, C. No, what we see Jesus model through his method was come and see. Live with me and I will teach you. And because none of us are Jesus and because we don't have the privilege of physically walking with Jesus, we look to his word and those who are more spiritually mature than we are who said to us, come and see. Most of you know my story. A retired dairy farmer. He didn't use these words, but he might as well have. Come and see. Come and see. It made a difference. It changed my life. If it wasn't for the retired dairy farmer, I wouldn't be standing here. You know where I would be? Probably dead in my sin somewhere. But I was invited to come and see. And so I would ask, is Christ making a difference in your life if you have moved out of chair one? If you're somewhere along this progression, after chair one, I would ask you, is Christ making a difference in your life? And if so, are you inviting people to come? 
and to see Christ through your life in order that they too might go from chair one to chair two, that they might go from being dead to being alive in Christ. And I will say very bluntly, again, it's going to sound harsh, but sometimes, you know, we need the truth of the word of God. If Christ is not making a difference in your life, you might still be in chair one. You might be sitting here today thinking you're somewhere along that progression, but when you think about the reality of whether or not Christ is really making a difference in your life, if he is not, there is a good chance you're still in chair one. No matter the circumstances, those who are in chair one have a condition that needs to be remedied. And this remedy is where those who are in Christ come into play for those who are in chair one. Now, as we've noted, only God has the ability to make something that is dead alive. But make no mistake, God uses his people to reach those in chair one through various forms of ministry. After all, it was Jesus himself who told his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Why? Because the labor is plentiful. Or the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. God entrusts the ministry, as we saw in our call to worship, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God entrusts the ministry of reconciliation to those who have been reconciled. Yes, it's God who's going to save them, but it's us who's going to tell them. It's us who's going to invite them to come and see. And so what are some principles for ministering to those who are in chair one? So what is the ministry to those who are in chair one? I'm going to give you seven principles of ministering to those who are in chair one. Challenging someone to come and see is a simple challenge. It's simple to invite them to come and see. We're not saying that we know everything. We're simply inviting them to learn what we do know. If we wait until we know everything, I would resign right now, quit, and go home. And you all should do the same thing. You don't wait until you know everything. The invitation is come and see. I'm going to tell you what I do know. And what I don't know, we'll figure out. We'll work together. We'll bring in someone who is more spiritually mature. I may not know it all, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to see the difference that Jesus is making in my life. Number two, we must understand that the ministry of outreaching and inviting others to come and see is a process. Okay? They don't always respond the first time to the invitation to come and see. And part of this process of inviting those to come and see and helping to move them from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive is actually, I stole this from the book that Dan Spader wrote on this very thing for child discipling. And he says that this is a process is found in Isaiah 29 verses 23 to 29 that includes, he calls it spiritual CPR, cultivating, planting, and reaping. If any of you in here have a garden, tend a garden, or a farmer, or something of the like, you know that the hardest part of farming, or growing fruit, or vegetables, or whatever you want to have, is the cultivating. It's the tearing up the ground, and turning over the dirt, and tending to the ground to ensure that it's it's ready to produce the fruit of whatever it is that's being planted. And so you turn that dirt over, and you work it, you cultivate it, and then you plant And then as you plant, you sow those seeds and you tend to it and you watch it. You follow up with those plants. You kind of see how they're doing. Maybe they need some water because it's been kind of dry. So you're going to plant. You're going to take care of those things. And then in due time, what happens? Well, those seeds that you planted are now bearing whatever you planted. And now you, you reap them. Inviting others to come and see is a process. Helping folks move from chair one to chair two and along the way, it often takes time. It takes work. And it takes energy. Thirdly, must always remember this as we minister to those in chair one. Jesus is the only means whereby a person can be restored in their relationship with God. Acts chapter four, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Number four. 
The ministry of evangelism is most effective when we're motivated by love. That's 2 Corinthians 5, our call to worship this morning. If you love God first and foremost and you love people, it will compel you to be involved in evangelism and outreach. Come and see. Evangelism is most effective when the motivation for it is love. Number five, evangelism is the byproduct of a healthy body of believers. In other words, as the body is growing in its health and is following Christ as a whole, it's contagious. When people see that you have something good that makes a difference in your life, guess what? They want it. You know why? Because people are hurting. People are broken. We do a great job of smiling, don't we? And we put on a front. And those we work with put on a front. And those we go to school with put on a front. But people are broken and hurting. But when we live like Christ makes a difference, it's contagious. Number six, evangelism is best achieved through relationships. Early on in my Christian life, My mother-in-law told me this. She's told me a lot of things I remember over the years, but this was one of them. Nobody cares how much you know till they know how much you care. Evangelism is not about a notch in the belt. Cultivating relationships with people who are spiritually dead is not about winning a competition. It's not about completing a project. Building relationships with lost people is about building relationships for the purpose of seeing everyone the same as spiritually dead and investing in them with your life for the purpose of, by God's grace, them becoming spiritually alive. And relationships are the key to this. We can all say a lot of things. But let's be honest, nobody really cares what we think, right? We do live in a world now where everybody, you know, hides behind their computers and their technology and they say whatever they want and they do. But the, the, the proof is in the pudding. I say this often anymore. You know somebody cares about you. How? Because they're invested in your life enough that when a time of need comes, they're there. They walk with you in the tough times. They walk with you through the difficulty. And when they know that you care and you speak hard truths, you're dead. You're dead in your sin and trespasses, and you're guilty before God. If they know you care, and they're not a project because you've cultivated a relationship, they just might listen. Number seven, we reap in proportion to what we sow. If you are not inviting people to come and see, then you are probably not reaping very many seeds. If you're not inviting people to come and see, you're probably not seeing very many people come to faith in Christ. Now, this is not to say that you will reap every seed that you sow. Word of God is very clear. Some reap, some sow. Okay? But through relationships and pouring into people, the opportunity for reaping is there. So it's not to say that you reap every seed you sow. It is to say that if you're making it your aim to invite people to come and see, that is, if you're making it your aim to sow seeds, then there's probably a fair amount of reaping that takes place in your life as well because you're focused on people and you're seeing them in light of their greatest need, that is, salvation. So you reap in proportion to what you sow. I'll finish this morning with two challenges. A challenge to those who are in chair one and a challenge to those who are in any other chair. Chair one, if you're willing to acknowledge this morning that you are in fact in chair one, I want to remind you that you are spiritually dead and that apart from life in Christ, you will be judged for all of eternity for your sin. I pray that this is a sobering reality for you this morning if you would acknowledge that you are in chair one. You see, you cannot do better, you cannot be better, you cannot try harder, and you cannot fix yourself up. 
Your challenge today, if you're in chair one, is to be made alive in Christ by grace through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There is no other name by which man can be saved. And today, I'm inviting you to turn from your sin and to trust Christ for your salvation and to go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And if you were in any of the other three chairs, here is my challenge. Are you motivated by love of God and love of others enough that you'll follow the method that Jesus has given us? Whereby we live for his glory even over our own and we set aside our comforts to enter into the world of those around us who need salvation because that's what Christ did for us. Philippians chapter 2, what is it? What do we read in Philippians chapter 2? That though he was in the form of God, he took on flesh. I don't care what circumstance of comfort we are being called out of today, it pales in comparison to leaving heaven and taking on flesh, becoming a man, and being punished. But that's what Christ did. And in doing so, he left a model and a method whereby we say our love for God and our love for people is enough that we'll set aside our comforts and we'll enter into the world of those who need Jesus. Are you willing to meet people where they are, seeking to develop relationships for the purpose of seeing those relationships become redemptive relationships. And what I mean by that is to see people move from chair one to chair two. Do you meet people where they're at? Those in chair two, three, four, let me ask you one more question. When was the last time you invited someone to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus for salvation? Because you will reap in proportion to what you sow. And if we're not inviting those who are dead to believe in Jesus to be made alive, then who's going to? We must invest. We must enter into the world of those around us who are dead and need to be made alive. Because God's word is clear. Apart from Christ, mankind is dead and in need of saving faith through Christ. And those who are in Christ are to be motivated by love for God and love for others. And in that motivation, they are to seek to cultivate relationships for the purpose of salvation in Jesus Christ. Are you in chair one today? Are you in chair one today? Or are you seeking to minister to those who are in chair one today? Only you know the answer to those two questions.